Well, today we continue this uh, series of messages in this series that we're calling uh, Grace, Gratitude, and Generosity. We've spent five weeks looking at this uh, truth of the gospel, which is grace. I think it's the foundation of our faith. Today will be the last sermon on grace, and next week we will start gratitude. So I'm going to go back to... um, the key verse for this whole series on grace uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to add one more verse this time. So 2, 8 through 10. Listen to God's word for us this morning. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And here's the verse we're adding today. For we are what he has made us. Some translations say we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Lord, we uh, again thank you for your amazing grace that finds us and saves us, that uh, changes us and creates and us a new person. We pray that you would speak to us today a clear word how this grace affects our church and that we would walk away from here being encouraged by the power of your grace. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark explores a really fascinating question. He asked the question, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from kind of the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge a classical paganism and become the dominant faith of the Roman world, Western civilization, in a few centuries. Have you ever asked that question? It's, I think, a fascinating question. How did this little group of people from, you know, kind of a backwater province of the Roman Empire birth this this movement that changed the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire, in just a few centuries. And this is what Rodney Stark uh, came up with as the answer to that question. His research came to the conclusion that this expansion, this uh, vigorous growth of the church resulted from the Christian's belief that God loved them. Very simple message. That God loved them. This message of unconditional love, of grace that we've been talking about, was the impetus, really the primary factor for the spread of Christianity in the Roman world. Stark points out that the Roman world needed this message particularly at that period in its history, because it was a a tough world, was a rough world. I mean, this was the world of the gladiators, people killing each other as sport. It was a world in which uh, if you had a baby you didn't want for whatever reason, whether it was the wrong sex or uh, it had some kind of disability, you just took it out to the dump and left it there. It was a rough world. 
groaning, really, under all kinds of cruelties and misery. It was a rough world that was in need of grace. And the idea that there was a God who loved people unconditionally, that believed in the absolute value of every person, was revolutionary. It changed the world. This simple yet very powerful message, life-transforming message of God's grace is what changed the world. You know, the world today, our country, is it not in need of grace? Wow, I can't think of a period in my life, which is getting along in years now, where I have felt that we needed the message of God's love and grace more than, than right now. God loves us. God loves you, not just in a general way that God so loved the world, but God loves you and me in a very personal way without condition. His love is based not on anything we do or don't do. Uh, you can't make God love you anymore. This is what we've been looking at for the last five weeks. This is the simple message of Christianity, of grace, and it's changed the world. You know, Karl Barth, I've mentioned him before, probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century. Huge mind. Wrote a ton of books. His 14-volume dogmatics of outline. It's this big on a shelf, a bookshelf. My TA in uh, seminary had just finished reading all of the dogmatics, the dogs as we called them. That's what you do in seminary. <laughs> and we threw a party for him because it was such an undertaking. But toward the end of his career as a professor, an earnest young student once stood during a lecture and asked him, Dr. Bart, could you sum up what was uh, the most important ideas about your life's work in theology in just a few words? And of course, the rest of the, the class just gasped, as though it was insulting to ask such a great mind to sum up his work in a few sentences. And Dr. Bart just thought for a while, for a moment, and then smiled. And he said this, he said, yes, in the words of my mother, who used to sing to me, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's our message. It's the essence of Christianity, this good news, this message of grace, and how it can change lives, individual lives, and our life together as a church. And that's what I want to focus on today, is how does this message of grace, if it's really rooted in the life of a congregation, how does it change a church? And I'll tell you, I have good experience with this. Because for 17 years, I pastored a church in Chico, and this was our message. This was the primary idea, the hedgehog. Is that what it's called? The hedgehog principle? And um, uh, what's that name of that book? Yeah. Every organization has a principle, right? 
that drives them or should. Uh, this was our hedgehog principle. It was preached. It was, the church was bathed in grace. And here's what happened. You know, this little church in downtown Chico grew and grew and grew and grew. And I say that not to, you know, brag or anything. It was God's grace. <laughs> but this thing grew. And it went against all odds. You know, I did a lot of reading on church growth and what causes a church to grow, and we didn't mark any of the boxes. We were downtown, first and Broadway. <laughs> Couldn't get much more downtown. Most growing churches are out in the suburbs, growing, surb- growing suburbs. We were mainline. We were Presbyterian, mainline churches all over the country. Presbyterian churches were declining like crazy. We had no parking. (laughs) Does this sound familiar, folks? I think we had 30 parking spaces, a little more than what we have, but not much. All the church growth experts said the number one thing you need to grow a church is a big parking lot. I would go out to these churches in the suburbs and have parking lot envy. It was just amazing. We were a very traditional-looking church. Our sanctuary was from 1909. An old church, 1868, it was founded. Most new churches are the growing churches. Out in the suburbs, plants. We had this amazing growth. And as we think about us as a church, and and we want to grow. We want to reach new families. We want to reach people in Piedmont and beyond. What is it that causes people, these churches to grow? What caused our church to grow? Well, the denomination wrote a little booklet on our church and what happened, they sent it to every church, every Presbyterian church in the country, every pastor. And so we started getting calls from all these churches who were declining, who were worried about growing. They wanted to come and visit. They wanted to talk to us. What's, what's the secret? Everybody was looking for a magic pill. You know what I told them? I said, really? I mean, we've done some creative things. We've worked hard. You know, all that. you got to do that. But really, the key is we are a church that is bathed in grace. We are a church that has preached grace for 10 years, and this was 10 years into it, and for another seven years. We've preached the gospel, pure, unadulterated, 100 proof good news of grace. Quality, a love to our church that was, I think, irresistible. How does grace, if we're really bathed in it, if we're immersed in it, if we're rooted in grace, how does it change a church? Well, I think... First of all, there's three things I'd like to say. I think it changes it in every way. But as we think about the future of our church, here's what I would say. I think, first of all, grace is not just this one-time event where we come to know God and we come to be accepted by God and are made right by God. As we see in our passage today, it's something that continues for the rest of our lives. 
I love verse 10. You know, we know verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We've talked about that for five weeks. We know that. But here's the verse that is often overlooked, and we don't hear about. For we are what he has made us. We are his workmanship. The word there really is poema, where we get our word poem. We are God's poem. God is writing in our lives a new story. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. God is doing something new in people when grace comes into their life. And it's not a one-time event. It's something that goes on through the rest of our lives. We come to know grace, and then we spend the rest of our lives growing in that love, understanding what God has for us. God's Holy Spirit begins to change us and transform us, make us into his very image. This is the power of grace, continuing in our lives. And you know what that does? That makes a vital church. It's a church of growth and vitality and transformation. And when people come to a church like that, they see people who are growing and changing. They see people who God is working in their lives. It's a very personal, transformative thing that happens in people's lives. For we are his workmanship. You are God's masterpiece. Created for good works. Now, we hear that and we think, oh, well, Paul's just going back to good works. I thought we were talking about grace. We are created for good works. It's not how we are accepted by God. It's like we talked about last week. It's a response to what God has done in our lives. And it's the greatest motivator there is, this love, this grace. We are full And we go out and we serve according to our giftedness, according to this poem that God has written on our hearts before the beginning of time. And we serve and we love. For we are created by good's works. It is strong motivation. You know, this last week in our small group time on Thursday nights, we were talking about this. There are so many ways we can be motivated to do good works. We can be motivated out of guilt, trying to make up for something that we did wrong. We can be motivated out of fear, fear that that somehow we are not good enough for God. We can be motivated as Don told me something. I learned something from Don this week. By self-interest, that we can be seen as a good person. But the greatest motivator for good works is love. That we are filled with love and we go out and we serve out of love and gratitude for what God has done us, done for us. It's magnetic. It's powerful. So one way that grace changes a church is it, it fills it. It gives it motivation to do God's work in the world. The second thing I would say is when a church is rooted in grace, 
It changes the relationships of people in the church. It's the equalizer, is it not? You know, when we come to know grace, it changes our vertical relationship with God, but it, it also very much changes our horizontal relationships. It changes how we treat others. It, it softens us, and this is what our country needs so, so much, isn't it? One who has been touched by the grace of God, you know, it, we don't look down upon others. We who are loved can then go love. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I, I had many kids from, from outside of the church come to our, our youth group. Church kids who never really had heard the message of God's love and grace before. They discovered it. They felt accepted by God. It began to change them. And I could see this change going on in their lives. And I would wait for a number of months. And then I would ask them, how has this experience of God's love God's transformative love changed you. What difference has it made in your life? And almost without exception, you know what they would say? They would say, you know what? It's really changed the way I treat other people. And in a very high school way, they would say, you know, there used to be kids who I would just kind of make fun of in class or who I looked down on because they weren't part of the popular group, or they had something that was different about them. They said, you know, since I've, I've learned about God's love, that has really changed how I see people. And here was the miracle of miracles. They said, you know, I think I love my parents more. It's changed my relationship with my parents. I think I appreciate them more and what they've done for me. Grace changes us and it changes how we see other people. We're all beggars. We're all equal recipients of God's grace. You know, I love how one author said, and this is what Paul says, you know, none of us can brag. It's a gift given to all of us that none of us can really earn. This is how one author said it. He says, one of my greatest anticipations is some glorious day being in a place where there will be no boasting, no name dropping, no selfishness. Guess where it will be? Heaven. There will be no spiritual sounding testimonies that call attention to somebody's colossal, super colossal achievements. None of that. Everybody will have written across his or her life the word grace. How did you get here, Grace? How did you get here, Grace? What made it possible? Grace, what's your name, Grace? <laughs> there will be more graces up there than every, any other name. Everywhere, Grace, Grace, Grace. I hope the same for our church. You see, although we have this great message of grace, the church often fails to give the world grace. And the place where grace should be in the greatest abundance is often the place where it is sorely lacked. In my ministry, I've met so many people that they, who are looking for something in their life, and these are the people that we need to reach. 
who are looking for something in their life, and yet the church is the last place they go to find it. They're going through difficult times, storms of life, have made mistakes, and they don't expect to find grace in a church. I was on a flight from uh, Sacramento to Burbank. I love Burbank Airport because you can exit the rear and the front, so I always try to go to Burbank. And I sat next to a woman on the plane, and we started talking. And I think I could have a ministry just flying around the country talking to people. So we started talking, and I asked her, you know, what do you do for a living? She said, you know, I'm in pyrotechnics. I work for this company that blows things up for movies. (laughs) I thought, wow, what a job. Never thought somebody worked for a pyrotechnics company and blew things up. So we kept talking, and she told me, she goes, you know, I'm divorced. I have a teenager, a single mom. She's about about ready to go off to college. And then she asked me, she said, what do you do for a living? Tell me about yourself. And I said, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And that that always changes everything, right? (laughs) And then she said this. She goes, you know, I've always been a spiritual person. I've always been interested in spiritual things. And then she said, but I've been skeptical of the church because I was raised in a church that just heaped guilt and judgment on me. And despite that, she was still looking for a church where she could go and find a community of faith. But she said, after my divorce, whenever I'd go to church, I just felt judged. I felt like people weren't really reaching out to me, just didn't really feel accepted. So we had this great conversation. And I got to tell you, I felt like the Holy Spirit was right there with us eating those stale peanuts in coach in Southwest Airlines. And I told her I was sorry that, that her experience with church was not, a, was not a positive one. And sorry that she didn't find a church that would embrace her and her daughter. And then I said this, you know, you matter a great deal to God. And God loves you. And God accepts you just for who you are and wants to be in relationship with you. She kind of teared up. We kept talking. And I thought to myself as we came into Burbank and I just looked at that big metropolis unfolding before us, all those homes and all those people. I just thought, wow, the world needs grace. There are people like her all over who need to know the grace of God. The world is thirsty for it and needs it. I want to close with this story. A number of years ago, Bill Moyers, remember him? He made a documentary on the great hymn, Amazing Grace, which included a scene filmed in Wembley, Wembley Stadium in London. You know, a huge stadium, sits 90, seats 90,000 people. And there was a concert there for uh, celebrating kind of the changes that were going on in South Africa and in celebrating Nelson Mandela's uh, birthday. And it was a whole day of rock and roll. I mean, the, the, the bands and the singers were just this Hall of Fame list of people. And for some reason, the promoter scheduled the opera singer, Jesse Norman, 
as the closing act. And the film kind of cuts back and forth between Moyers interviewing Norman about the meaning of the song Amazing Grace for her, and then the scenes of this unruly crowd which had been partying all day in the stadium. 12 hours, groups like Guns N' Roses had been blasting the crowd through huge banks of speakers. It was a great party. And finally, at the end, it came time for Norman to sing. If you don't know Jesse Norman, she's this African-American opera singer. And she walked out on the stage, which by this time it was dark, and so all the lights went down except one light on Jesse Norman walking out to a microphone. No backup band, no musical instruments, just Jesse Norman and her voice. And the crowd became kind of restless, and one person yelled for more Guns N' Roses. Others took up the cry, and the scene began to get kind of ugly. And then alone, a cappella, Jesse Norman began to sing very slowly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. A remarkable thing happened. Tens of thousands of rowdy fans fell silent before her aria of grace. And by the time she reached the second verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Man, she had the entire crowd in her hands. And by the third verse, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me People had begun singing and humming and reaching back for words they may not have sung for years. You know, what is it about that song that everybody knows it? That everybody loves it? That this rowdy group of people fell silent before Jesse Norman singing it? 
Well, I think the world needs grace. Don't you? We all need grace. The world thirsts for it. And when grace descends, the world falls silent before it. Amen.